All right. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7, we are going to attempt to finish this chapter today. It's a big chunk of scripture to go through, um, but I think we'll be able to manage it just fine. John chapter 7. Um, if you uh, remember, we, we began this uh, a few weeks ago. John began this chapter with a rather solemn note. In chapter 7, verse 1, he said, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. That's a pretty ominous way to open a chapter. And we know that's true because the Jews sought to kill him. That began back in chapter 5. But here we were told that he was really seeking to avoid them altogether because they were after him. And then John records some dialogue between Jesus and his brothers, his earthly brothers, who were not believers. And his discussion ended with this this phrase in verse seven. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. And then John captured the controversy that was brewing and developing over Jesus in verse 12. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. There's a lot of hostility going on, a lot of division concerning Jesus. And all of it stems from one source, and that source is unbelief. Unbelief. Jesus does go up to the feast here. He's in the temple. He begins to teach. And once again, once he begins teaching, people are astonished at his teaching. They marvel at his teaching because he spoke Boldly and as one who had authority, not as one who was under authority. And if you remember, Jesus is here at this feast of tabernacles or feast of booths, um, which is a very popular uh, feast. It will be celebrated in the Messianic kingdom where Jesus reigns on earth for a thousand years. But at this time that Jesus begins teaching, people look like they begin to get more divided and more confused And even some begin to be filled with contempt. Last week, we looked at Jesus and what he was teaching to them um, during this time at the feast. This week, we're going to look at some of the reactions that people had uh, against Jesus because they're very similar to people's reactions today. They're confused today over who Jesus is, divided over who Jesus is. And some choose just to hate him, to be filled with contempt. Over who Jesus is. We see the same people then and we see the same people today. So let's just jump into this. It's a big section. We're going to start in verse 25 and go all the way to the end of verse 52. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these? which this man has done. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. 
And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me and where I am, you cannot come. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. Lord, this is a, a big section of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what is taking place in the hearts of people here. Here we see people's response to you. How will we respond to you today, Lord? Some wonder, are you the Christ? Would you help us to see that you indeed are who you claim to be today, God? Help us to see truth. Help us to know truth and apply that truth to our lives for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's jump into this. Let's look at verse um, 25. Um, we're going to just divide this into some sections and just sort of look at the different sort of confusion that people were having here over Jesus. And I think first you see that they're confused over his manner, just how he acted among the people. You see that in this first section, verses 20, uh, 25, all the way kind of to 30. But Look at verses 25 to 26 to begin with. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Now, remember, this would have been a city filled with pilgrims, people from all over uh, Israel, because it's a feast of the Jews. And they would have been there uh, because it's one of the major three feasts that the Jewish males had to attend. But unlike the many pilgrims in the city, there were some people there who were aware of the intentions of the religious leaders. They knew that they were out for Jesus. And so this phrase, is this not he whom they seek to kill? It expects a positive answer. Well, yes, it is, right? They are after him. And they know that they are after Jesus. And they are concerned because Jesus is standing here openly and boldly, and he is condemning their hypocrisy. And they're doing nothing about it. If you remember, it was in, in the last section that we looked at. Look at verse 19 of chapter 17, uh, chapter 7. He said, did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? 
And then in verse uh, 22, he said, Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken. Are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. He said that to the Jewish leaders, bold, loudly for everyone to hear. Obviously, these people heard it. And so they're confused. Like, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? And he is openly defying them, isn't he? So their only conclusion then is that perhaps the religious leaders have come across some new information. Maybe they've come across something that have led them to believe that he indeed was the Messiah. That's why they say, do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? That idea must seem far fetched to them because that expects a negative answer. They don't really know that this could be the Christ, right? Well, verse 27 explains why they really reject that idea. However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. So here he is. Jesus is boldly, you know, defying the religious authorities, the ones that are trying to kill him. And the people are confused. Why aren't they taking him? They don't really think that he's the Christ, do they? Because we know where he's from. And the Christ, well, when the Christ comes, you won't know where he's from. Is that true? Does that ring true to anyone's mind, even just sitting here today? Because that it wasn't true. In fact, it was just a popular belief of the day that the Messiah would be unknown and it would suddenly appear uh, in the temple um, and would suddenly come to redeem Israel. And it was really a tradition that was generated from myth and also misinterpretation of some scriptures. And I'll show you a couple today here. Old Testament, Old Testament passages like Isaiah 53, 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment that speaks of the Messiah. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off. From the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. You won't know his generation. You won't know where he's from. You won't know his people. That's what they assumed in Malachi 3 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So he'll just uh, suddenly appear. Confusion. Confusion over the Messiah. How will he come? Do you know that the Jews are still confused today because they are awaiting the Messiah, aren't they? I don't know if you knew this, but we have actually a, 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 Jew, a Jew in our family. And I've had these conversations with her. I said, so you're waiting for the Messiah. I said, how will the Messiah come? How will you know who the Messiah will be? Well, he'll come on a flying horse. I don't, have you heard that before? That's, this is coming from straight from, yes, he's supposed to come. On a horse, as said, a Pegasus, like a flying horse, a horse with wings. So he's supposed to come on a horse with wings. I said, well, you're close. He's going to come on a donkey and lowly. And guess what? Never heard it before. A Jew. Where's that from? The Bible, Zechariah 9, 9. But try reading it one day, right? Guess where the Pegasus, the flying horse came from? Rabbinic tradition, myth, legend, passed down. He's going to come on a horse flying in the sky. So people even this day, like some were confused. Others, though, in the chapter, and you'll see, will actually acknowledge the fact that the Messiah's origin is prophesied in the Old Testament. We are to know uh, where they're to come, where he's to come from. But this particular group has been misinformed by myth, by tradition. In addition to that, they falsely asserted that they they knew where Jesus was from. Did they really know 
where Jesus was from. Well, as you'll see, that generates Jesus' response in verse 28. Then Jesus cried out. So this is a, a loud saying to everybody as he taught in the temple. You both know me and you know where I'm from and I've not come of myself. But he who sent me is true whom you do not know. <laughs> now, this is interesting because Jesus makes an opposite statement in the next chapter. In chapter 8, verse 19, he'll say this. Then, then he said to them, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. So in the next chapter, he's going to say that you don't know me and you don't know my father. Here he says, you both know me and you know where I'm from. Jesus would not contradict himself, would he? He wouldn't say something uh, and then go around and say something completely different. So what is Jesus doing here? Why does he make this statement? Well, I think I think it's clear from the context that he's sort of being sarcastic, right? Because they they don't know where he's from. In effect, he's saying, so you think you know me? You think you know where I'm from, huh? You don't even know the one who sent me, right? That's how he ends it. How can he, they know where he is from if they don't know the one who sent them? They don't know the very God that they profess to know. How can Jesus say such a thing? Go ahead and look at chapter 8. Just real quick, take a brief turn to chapter 8. Look at verse 42. We'll obviously get to this in a few weeks. But in 842, Jesus said to them, and this is the same crowd, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he who sent me. They cannot know God because they don't receive Jesus as Messiah. Right? So they don't know him. But on the other hand, Jesus does know God. That's verse 29. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. So this this is quite a statement. Jesus is bold. He's, he's speaking out against the religious leaders. This confuses the crowd. They're confused over his manner. Why is he acting like this? We, we know where he's from, and Jesus challenges that thinking. Do you really know where I'm from? Because you don't even know the one who sent me, but I know him. And look at the crowd's reaction. It infuriates them. Verse 30, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, his hour had not yet come. I know we spent a time going over that a few weeks back. We went through and looked at how often we see that type of phrase because um, it's true. Jesus is operating on God's divine timetable. Um, he would die, but he'll die at the appointed time and the appointed manner. He will not die during the Feast of Tabernacles. It will be during a different feast. And he won't die at the hands of this unruly mob. So they're confused over his his manner and they want to take him. But then we have a group who are confused over his mission. Look at verse 31. And many of the people believed in him. And said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So while some are confused and some wanted to seize him, others actually believed. Well, believed what? What did they believe? Well, that Jesus was the Messiah, because that's what the claim is about. They believed him. They start speaking about the Christ. When the Christ comes, will he do more miracles uh, than this? The Messiah was a real person, right? Really foretold in the Old Testament. They were expecting him uh, to come. And that... Messiah would come and do miracles. That was to be the sign of the Messiah. Look at Isaiah 29, 18 to 19. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. 
The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. That speaks of the Messiah and the miraculous works that he would do spiritually and physically. Isaiah 35, 5 to 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Even when John the Baptist was arrested, he wanted to know if Jesus was the Messiah. Do you remember that? In Matthew 11, 2 to 5, says this. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, and look at at the answer, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. It's the miracles. It's the signs. If John wants to know who I am, tell him this is what you've seen and heard. I've done all the things that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And so these people believe that Jesus had to be the Messiah because they just couldn't imagine that anyone else could do more miracles than Jesus. Could could there be someone else would do more miracles than him? Because let's face it, he's done everything, right? But the Pharisees overhear the sway of the crowd. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. This is the second time that a group wants to take Jesus at this feast. And take means to seize, to means to arrest. That's what they're trying to do here. It's the same word used here. Um, And they're doing it because they're angry. Jesus has angered them by saying the obvious thing. You don't know God. And these Pharisees want to take him because some are actually believing in him as the Messiah. Right. They're starting to be swayed toward that. And if you remember, the Pharisees were the guardians of, of the Jewish traditions, the Jewish teachings. And if the people began following Jesus instead of following them, they would have to set aside those teachings of the Pharisees and follow the teaching of Jesus Because they're contrary. You couldn't follow both. They couldn't follow Jesus' teachings and the teaching of the Pharisees. They would not coexist. The Pharisees very much see that. They're going to have to pick one or the other. They're contrary to one another. We saw that last week because Jesus declared that his teaching was divine. And it was contrary to what they taught. It was straight from God. In addition, he, he taught as one having the authority himself. And that's what the people saw. They saw the difference between how he taught and how these Pharisees, and they started to put it together. You see, they're like, wait a minute. And the Pharisees don't want that wait a minute moment in the mind of someone else. We're going to stop this. We're going to send someone to take Jesus. So here you see uh, a great division in the nation that's beginning to, to take place uh, over Jesus. Jesus teaches with authority, but then he teaches in a manner that gives the glory to God and not himself. Opposite of the teaching of the Pharisees, right? So they just start to see the differences. And so some want to hail him as Messiah. Some want to kill him. Who who is this? They're confused. So the officers of the temple are sent to take Jesus. And as you'll you'll see later, the reason will become evident later in the text. But they they won't succeed. They won't succeed in their their mission. And so Jesus will continue to proclaim boldly the purpose of his mission. And this is is what really confuses them. Look at verse thirty three. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. What is Jesus talking about here? 
Every Jew thought that the purpose of the Messiah's coming would be to set up a new kingdom for Israel, right? He's going to come and set up this new kingdom. He'll free them from the oppression of Rome. Well, that will happen, but not right now. The initial mission of Jesus was to die on a cross for the sins of man, right? To to resurrect, to ascend to the Father. They didn't know that part. And that's why he says, you will seek me and not find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And they they did seek him. They sought him, but they sought him for a different reason. They sought to kill him. They've rejected Jesus. And the truth of what Jesus is teaching here is the truth of his of his mission. And it divides the people. Jesus is going someplace that no one can follow him. We'll, we'll cover this in a minute. Those who reject Jesus will never come to where he is going. That is true. And he's speaking to those who have rejected him. He'll repeat those same words. Very interesting. In John chapter 13, verse 33. I want you to turn there because we'll look at a couple passages there. Look at John chapter 13. Look at verse 33. He even makes reference to what he says right here. In John chapter 13, verse 33. Speaking to his disciples, okay? Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. Do you see what he did there? He refers to this very moment. You remember what I said to the Jews? Where I'm going, you cannot come. That applies to you too. To his disciples. I'm going to go. And where I go, you cannot come. Now, for those who die in Christ, they are immediately ushered into the presence of heaven. Um, This was a message here that he's giving to those who reject him. To those who reject him, they will not be going to where he is going. Um, But believers will. You say, well, but he just said to his disciples that you won't be coming. Well, just skip down a few more verses. If you're still in chapter 13, look at verse 36. Simon Peter, obviously confused by this statement, said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Do you see it? No one is going to be able to go where I'm going right now. He speaks of his mission. I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to ascend to the Father, and it's a ticket for me, not you. Right? He's going to leave them on that mountaintop. Right? Bye. They cannot go now, but they will go afterwards. And for for all believers of all time, those who die in Christ are immediately ushered ushered into the presence of Christ. That is a biblical fact. Second Corinthians five eight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. You're with Jesus. For others, they'll live to see Jesus return. In fact, if you're still in John chapter 13, just look a few verses later to the beginning of verse uh, chapter 14. I mean, this is right in the same context of going away and we can't go with you. And wait, we're going to go with you later. What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus explains in John chapter 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I love that. Okay, I know this disturbed you, Peter, what I said. But listen, I'm going to go somewhere. I'm I'm making a home for you. If I go make a home for you... I'm coming back to get you, right? I've got a room with your name on it. It says Peter. 
I'm not going to come back and get Bob and put Bob in Peter's room. Bob gets his own room. Peter, this is your room. And guess what? There's a room for Haley. There's a room for Jody. There's a room for Charles. There's a room. Can you believe that? Jesus says, I made a room for you. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to John chapter 14 later. But the point, I'm getting excited. Like, hey, this is, you know, let's just go. But this confuses the Jews, obviously, as it would. Because that's not the purpose and mission of the Messiah. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? And that's their response. The Jews among themselves, verse 35, said, where does he intend to go that we should not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will not seek me and not find me and where I am cannot come. You know, they're just confused by the only thing. The only thing they can think of is that maybe, maybe he's going to the dispersion among the Greeks. Possibly Jews just dispersed in the Gentile areas or even Gentile proselytes, proselytes coming into Judaism. But that's those people. Like we wouldn't go there. Right? If, if, if he's going somewhere we can't find him, he must be talking about going to those pagan Gentile people that we wouldn't go to. That's where he's. So it's a scornful remark, right? They're scornfully referring uh, to them. This is what's interesting is that their spiritual blindness, their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah will actually be the thing that will take the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's an amazing passage. And I don't want you to miss it. It's in John uh, Romans, sorry, chapter 11. It's Romans chapter 11. I just want to read this to you because of their stubborn hearts there. The gospel went to the Gentiles in Romans 11 verses 7 to 11. Paul writes this. What then Israel has not been not obtained what it seeks, hmm. but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor eyes that they should not see. And ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their stubborn rejection of Jesus as the Messiah is really what took the gospel to the Gentiles. Salvation has come to you and to me because of that. But they're confused by this. This this does not line up with the mission of the Messiah. Where Where are you going? If you're the Messiah, you're supposed to be here with your people, not those Gentiles. Right. It's a prideful heart. Not only are they confused over his manner, his teaching. And confused over his mission, they're confused over his promise. And Jesus makes an amazing promise that both you and I actually get to realize today. It's an amazing thing. Look at verses 37 to 44. In this section, we see it. Look at verses, well, just the first part of verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast. We've, we've moved ahead a bit in time because this is a week-long feast. So we've moved to the end of the feast, on the very last day of this feast. And it's important to note the backdrop in which Jesus says these these stunning words he's about to say. And I made reference to it a couple weeks just to get prepared for it because the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of God's provision, wasn't it? During the 40 years of wandering, right? Build yourself a shelter, get inside it. And remember, that's right. I had a shelter when I was in the wilderness, right? But one of the things that became a tradition at this feast was not something prescribed in the Old Testament passage we read, but something that became a tradition. And it's a great tradition. But they would... 
do this sort of solemn pouring of water. And so the priest would go up to the pool of Siloam, get some water from the Gihon spring there, fill it up. And they would do this procession with this water all the way to the altar. And they would pour it while the priests were sort of chanting or sort of singing Isaiah 12, 3. But says, therefore, that with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They would do this and they would do it every day. So think about it. a week long celebration every single day. There's this solemn procession that focuses on the outpouring of water, which obviously commemorated the miraculous provision of water during them wandering in the wilderness. But it also spoke prophetically of the coming days of the Messiah. We talked about the Feast of Tabernacles being that which we celebrated in the millennial kingdom. But Jesus does something amazing. This is the backdrop you have. And he stands up now and he says these words. Look what he says here. Verse 37, Jesus stood and cried out. So he declares this saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is this is amazing. Because what Jesus has just done here in this little tiny verse is he's just given a gospel invitation in a nutshell. Now, we've seen it happen, but in this back area of Sychar, Samaria, with a woman at a well. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he has declared this. He has cried it out. Jesus, the evangelist, has just given the gospel. And look at it. Just, I'll just break it down real briefly here, right? This is a very simple gospel presentation. It is for those who are thirsty. You have to recognize your spiritual thirst, that you're spiritually needy. You lack something spiritually. And I do too. And that's what Jesus was trying to get across to the woman at the well, right? It was what Jesus was trying to get across to even Nicodemus. We'll get to that in a minute. But you have to recognize your spiritual um, thirst and recognize that something has to fill that. And we do. I will tell you this. Every human being recognizes some kind of thirst, some kind of absence because they fill it. With everything else. You go to the world, you, you fill it with everything you can. You're, you're, you're thirsty, you're hungry for something. just can't pinpoint it, right? I remember I had a friend when I was working in the movie industry and behind the scenes as a grip. And he was just always, always just, you know, hard on his luck kind of thing, you know, and just always depressed and always, and he's just not a believer. And, and he would love to d- 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 debate me because he just professed to have so much knowledge of Scripture, Right. And he would say, well, this in the, in the original language means this or this. And he would, you know, I would go, well, actually, that's, written, that's Aramaic. But, you know, whatever. And, and, but we would go through these things back and forth. And I just remember one time he was so depressed and frustrated and he was kicking something. And I said, Morgan, I know you know what you need. He goes, oh, what, Kevin? Religion? <laughs> I was like, oh, no, <laughs> you don't need religion. You're trying to fill. You, in fact, you probably tried that. You probably tried to fill what you're hungry for with religion. I said, brother, you do not need religion. You need Christ. But see, there's confusion, isn't there? People confuse Christ with religion. Christ is not religion. But the Pharisees had religion. It's not Christ. We're desperately thirsty. And Jesus just says, if you're thirsty, then come, which is the second thing. You have to come to the source of the living water. You recognize you're thirsty, then come to the one who can give you the the water. And so Jesus says, if you're thirsty, then come. You come to me. And the third thing is, take a drink. You can come to Jesus, but if you don't drink of him, you could come every Sunday, but if you don't drink of him, what has that done for your thirst? 
It's nothing. How do you drink of it? You have to do that by faith. You have to do that by faith. But that is the gospel in a nutshell. And Jesus just gives it in that one little phrase. But then he goes on. Look at verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, it's not really clear what specific scripture reference Jesus is referring to because he doesn't say what passage. But if I were to hazard a guess, I would say one possibility would be Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Now, I would choose that for verse because of the reason that John gives us. I'm thankful for John, the author, because he does give us a footnote as to what Jesus was talking about in verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John explains that, I think like Isaiah 44, the living water uh, was the coming gift of the Holy Spirit to those to those who believed. So you must you thirst, you must come to Jesus to get that water by faith, drink of him. And now that you believe for those who have believed, you have an eternal river of living water flowing in you eternity. It's just going forever. But John equates that with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, this probably needs a bit of explanation. So I don't want anybody to be confused. I don't want you to misunderstand me or I'm sure they misunderstood Jesus. But Jesus is not saying that the Holy Spirit was not already present. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying that the Holy Spirit was not already active in, in any period of redemptive history because the Holy Spirit has been active. And I'm going to give you some quick references. I could probably spend all day going through the Old Testament, but I just picked a few. The Holy Spirit had a particular ministry of empowering people for particular services, leadership, skills, prophesying, gifts, all kinds of things we could pick from. I just picked a few and I'll show you. In Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 to 5, they've made a collection and of offering from the people to build God's tabernacle. But now you need someone to build it. Look what happens. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, see, I have called my, by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God. In wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, in all manner of workmanship. Why? To design artistic works, to work in gold and silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. I can imagine that Moses would have been so burdened by the vision of the tabernacle. I'll get all this stuff and then build it. Like, I can't build this. Like, what are you talking about? This is such an elaborate thing. Oh, don't worry. I've just put it all in Bezalel. He's got it all because I've given him my spirit. What? Amazing. In Numbers 11, 16 to 17, the Lord said to Moses, gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. You need help leading, Moses. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to put some of the spirit I've given to you on these 70 men. Even Gideon, Judges 634, but the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet 
And the Abyssalites gathered behind him. All kinds of Old Testament examples of the Holy Spirit coming upon men to prophesy. King Saul starts prophesying, right? To have supernatural strength. Who doesn't know Samson, right? That's the Holy Spirit's power in the Old Testament. But the primary job of the Holy Spirit, which has never changed, is to convict the world of sin and bring about repentance. He is the power behind regeneration. You want to just turn back to John chapter three real quick. I want you to remember Nicodemus because he appears at the end of our passage today. But Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler that came to Jesus by night. And Jesus, you know, this is the man that's accomplished everything he needed to do. Right. He obeyed the letter of the law. He did all the, he, you know, observed all the feasts and all those things. But he lacks something. And look what Jesus says to him. He says, you need to be born again. But then in verses five to six, he said this most assuredly, I say to you. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He didn't have the spirit. It was all flesh works, things. You need to be born from above. And if you're born from above, right, then you're going to have the living waters in you. You're going to have the Holy Spirit in you. And so what was Jesus talking about then? If Jesus was saying... I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you living water. And John tells us that, oh, he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, which was not yet given. Then what was Jesus referring to? Well, Jesus was referring to a new era, a new time. The spirit would come with a new fullness, more so than it ever come before. It would begin at Pentecost. That's when that would happen. And it's the indwelling baptism and sealing of the Holy Spirit. Now, We'll go all through that in John chapter 14. I'm not going to go through it all today because I'll just spoil it all. But but that would be that would inaugurate the church age. And it would happen because why? Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus must die, rise again, ascend to the father, be glorified. And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And guess what? Jesus will promise the Holy Spirit later in John chapter 14 verses 16 to 18. He'll say this, and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. You know what? I love that Jesus doesn't leave us orphans. He says, you know, I'm going to go, but I'm not leaving you alone. You're not children without a father. I'll actually be in you. And guess what? That is something unique for the church age. Believers all through history then have had the spirit indwelling them. One thing I, I've just always passed along is a little acronym. And if you can remember the word ribs, anyone like to eat ribs, barbecued ribs? All right. You won't forget it then. Ribs R regeneration. The Holy Spirit is the active force in regenerating you. You're a new creation because of the Holy Spirit. I indwelling. He dwells you. B, baptism, S, sealing, right? R-I-B-S. We'll cover it more when we get to John chapter 14, but I remember those as that's the, the active work and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives today, New Testament church age. That's what happens. But this promise is, is veiled here. They don't understand it. It's, it's not clearly seen. Thanks to the author's footnote, we know the meaning of uh, Jesus' words. Regardless, this causes confusion in the crowd as well. So look at verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. They're again referring to Jesus as the prophet. 
which we've looked at a few times, mentioned by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, right? Moses was was going to have uh, leave, but then there would be another prophet that would come like Moses, who God would speak through, and that was the prophet. Well, this, some, some people think, well, this is the prophet. And then the, the first part of verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. So some think this is the Messiah. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So here we come to a group of people who knew the scriptures a little bit better than those first, that first group. Says, ah, oh, we don't know where the Messiah is going to come from. Give me the flying horse. No, these guys know. No, he's, he's not supposed to come from Galilee. Where is he supposed to come from? They knew the Old Testament scriptures a little bit better. He was supposed to come from one, the seed of David. You see that note of that? The seed of David. Um, that comes from 2 Samuel 7, where God is talking to King David and makes a, a covenant with David. In verse 12, he says this, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And then in verse 16, he says this, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So an eternal throne and with an eternal king will come through David. They knew that to be the Messiah. Isaiah 11.1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, David's father. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. So he's of the seed of David. The Messiah is also supposed to be born from the town of Bethlehem. Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. This group knew the scriptures, but they didn't know Jesus. They merely assume that since Jesus grew up in Nazareth, he must have been born there. You're from Galilee. The Messiah wouldn't come from a backwater region like Galilee. But had they done a little research, they would have learned that Jesus fits both of those qualifications. When you go and read the genealogies that are included in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, they're there to confirm that he's in the line of David. When you go read Matthew 2 and Luke 2, they're there to confirm that he was born in Bethlehem. But no one bothered to check his credentials. Remember when they questioned his credentials to teach? What? Who taught you, Jesus? Right? They want his credentials. Who taught you? Tell us what rabbi taught you. How could you be so educated? How could you be so learned without being educated? He wasn't educated. How was he able to teach so well without credentials? But now they want credentials. They want to know where where is he from? He's from Galilee. Oh, he can't be the Messiah. No, they're not even bothering checking his credentials. So there's there's division again over who he is. Look at verses 43 to 44. So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. So there you have the third attempt in this section of scripture alone to take Jesus. Division, confusion. Who is this guy? Uh, Let's just take him. People today fit in all those different categories, right? Confused about how this... Just Jesus spoke. Yeah, he spoke eloquently. He's a good teacher. Or, yeah, he was just rude. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't very, um, what's the word we like to use uh, today? It just like went out of my head. Um, no, our, our, oh man. Anyway, tolerant. Jesus wasn't very tolerant. 
Right. So they've, they've made a decision about him. Right. They've, they've categorized Jesus. Oh, Jesus wasn't the Messiah because he didn't come and do what the Messiah was supposed to do. Right? They're confused about who he was. But then some people just have hatred and contempt. And that's what it ends with. This last section is just contempt by the religious leaders. Verses 45 to 52. So look at verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Remember these officers back in verse 32? They went back to go get Jesus, right? They sent officers to get him. Officers come back, no Jesus. They're empty handed. And so the Pharisees say, well, wait, why haven't you not brought the man? And look at their reasoning here. Well, no man ever spoke like this man. I just, I just couldn't do it. Have you heard him teach? It's almost like, oh, not you two, right? That's the Pharisees' reaction. You, you too? You're listening to this rubbish as well? Yes, they're, they're falling in. Look at verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? They're so prideful, right? Verse 48. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know uh, the law is accursed. So, so you have a, a, pri- a prideful, contemptuous group of leaders here. And even their own officers go to arrest him. We've given you orders, go take him. And they come back with no Jesus. What is the deal? Well, we just listened to him teaching. No one ever taught like that. You're deceived as well. You're not as highly educated as us. You lack the spiritual discernment. You uh, have just been taken in by this charlatan, this Jesus. They arrogantly remark that no other ruler or no other Pharisee has believed in him. What other ruler do you see that has said, yes, this is the Messiah, right? I mean, if Jesus were the Messiah, don't you think the religious experts would be the first to recognize him? People do that, right? Why did not the religious experts of those day sign off on Jesus? They were Jews, weren't they? Why did they not believe? See, he couldn't be the Messiah. And so they even deride the crowd, right? Well, they, they don't know the law, meaning the Old Testament and rabbinic traditions. We're the spiritual elite. We know the law. We know what we're looking for in the Messiah. This Jesus, he's not the guy. You all are accursed. But it's they who are accursed because they rejected Jesus, God's revelation. So the Pharisees, interestingly, have just claimed that no religious leaders, right? They, they, all religious leaders, sorry, I should say it this way, have uh, unanimously rejected Jesus, all of them. Right. And almost to answer that question, Nicodemus pops up. Nicodemus steps forward. I I love it because Nicodemus is a Pharisee ruler. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said, we know that you are sent from God because no one does the things you do. And so almost to just like slap him in the face, Nicodemus steps forward. Now, they don't know he's a follower in secret. But we know. We know that the Pharisees have just lied. Nicodemus steps forward. It says this in verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? (laughs) I I love this. We really didn't know what happened to Nicodemus after we met him in chapter three. And here he just pops up in the middle of this discussion. Leaders are so full of contempt against Jesus. They don't even realize that they're making false and hasty judgments that actually go against the law. That they just profess to know better than the people. And Nicodemus steps forward and says, well, I don't think we're supposed to make judgments like like this. Are, are we supposed to judge a person before he's 
Yeah, I think that's, I think that's in violation of the law. And it is. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that's too hard for you, bring it to me and I will hear it. Nicodemus knows the law, but seems like maybe the Pharisees who were so big on knowing the law don't really know the law. And they weren't really right about being unanimously rejected by the leaders because here's one right here going, well, I don't really think we're being fair. We're not following the law. He's pointing out their hypocrisy here. And this, I would think this would really set them off. (laughs) It actually does. Because look at their response to Nicodemus. This verse 52, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? (laughs) Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Their minds are so closed. Their only response is to is to ridicule him. Right. Okay, you're one of those unlearned, unsophisticated backwater Galileans as well, then, because you clearly don't know anything because go ahead and look. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And I guess forgot Jonah because Jonah came from Galilee. So wrong again, Pharisees. You see, the truth doesn't matter to them. They're rejecting truth left and right. They just don't want to accept Jesus. You can argue all day long with someone who's contemptuous against Jesus. Listen, you will not convince them. It's a heart issue. You won't. They will always reject him. The Holy Spirit can reveal truth. Arguing, I find usually just stirs people up more. I'd rather just gently present the gospel. If you're thirsty, you look like you've been thirsty. I I see you've been trying to fill your life with lots of things, and they they haven't really worked. Have you tried Jesus? What, religion? No. Jesus. Because Jesus will fill your thirst. He'll quench it. And Jesus has said this earlier in the chapter, right? It's faith that comes... First, back in verse 17, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Faith comes first. You must believe to understand. You cannot understand to believe. The Pharisees here are a perfect case in point. Their contempt of Jesus just stemmed from their pride and their um, supposed knowledge of the law. A certain degree of knowledge is important, but I just want to listen you to listen to a quote, and just we'll end with this, by J.C. Ryle. He just said this so well. But while we value religious knowledge, we must take care that we do not overvalue it. We must not think that it is enough to know the facts and doctrines of our faith unless our hearts and lives are thoroughly influenced by what we know. The very devils know the creed intellectually and believe and tremble, but remain devils still, James 2.19. It is quite possible to be familiar with the letter of Scripture and to be able to quote texts appropriately and reason about the theory of Christianity and yet to remain dead in trespasses and sins. Like many of the generation to which our Lord preached, we may know the Bible well and yet remain faithless and unconverted. Heart knowledge we must always remember, is the one thing needful. It is something which schools and universities 
cannot confer. It's the gift of God. To find out the plague of our own hearts and hate sin, to become familiar with the throne of grace and the fountain of Christ's blood, to sit daily at the feet of Jesus and humbly learn of him, this is the highest degree of knowledge to which mortal man can attain. Let anyone thank God who knows any anything of these things, and we can thank God today. If you know anything of those things, if you have drank from the well that Jesus offers you, you you have reason to give thanks today. Sadly, there are people who remain faithless and unconverted, like J.C. Rowell said, contemptuous and prideful. And Jesus just says, you know what? You're thirsty. You're thirsty. Don't feed your pride. Feed on me. Feed on him today. The question at the beginning, could Jesus be the Christ? I think it's very clear. He is. He's the Christ. He didn't come to rule Israel then and there. He came to rule in your heart. Let him do that. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for us who have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That have drunk freely of the living water that you offer us. And now, here in the church age, we are not orphans. We continue on with the spirit of God dwelling in us. Amazing truths to Absorb today so much to take in, God. Help us to assimilate these truths today into our hearts, Lord, that we might apply these things to our lives. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has just gone through the motions, has questioned who you really are, remain faithless and unconverted, let them know you love them. We all have been there, (laughs) faithless unconverted, but you came to me and said, drink of me. I see you're thirsty, Kevin. You're drinking of all these things in the world. None of them will satisfy. Drink of me. You call people to do that even today here in this room, I'm sure. I pray that they would. All people will come to you. You declare them to come to you. There is no other place that we can go. No one we can come to. Salvation is found in no other name but the name of Jesus. And we proclaim that loudly today. You are our salvation, and we praise you for it. God be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.